This episode of the Politics for Everything originally aired on December 14th, 2022. In 2019, the Twitter user Maple Cocaine posted one of the best observations about the culture and tendencies of that platform. Each day on Twitter, Mr. Cocaine wrote, there is one main character. The goal is never to be it. Depending on your familiarity with the platform, you may remember Bean Dad, who boasted of refusing to open a can of beans for his nine-year-old daughter, or the user whose simple question for gun control activists was how they expected him to protect his children from 30 to 50 feral hogs running wild in his yard. Since the end of October, the main character on Twitter most days has become Twitter. Or more specifically, its new owner, the needy, impulsive billionaire Elon Musk. Since acquiring the platform, Musk has thrown it into chaos, both internal and external, with seemingly improvised new moderation policies, mass layoffs, and flailing attempts to boost revenue. Musk's leadership has been so disruptive that many of Twitter's most devoted users have started wondering whether the site can survive, and whether they want to keep posting if it does. This week, we're asking what it looks like for a platform to die, what that death would mean for people and industries that have come to rely on it, and whether we might all be better off, or at least less miserable, in a world without internet-wide main characters. I'm Alex Perrine. And I'm Laura Marsh. This is The Politics of Everything. Want a regular dose of The New Republic? Sign up for TNR newsletters, must-reads every day of the week. Get daily roundups of trending news and commentary from TNR.com. Discover the rogues and scoundrels of American politics with Deputy Editor Jason Lincolns. Keep tabs on the rumblings of Capitol Hill with Grace Seegers and Daniel Strauss. And find out what's got Editor Michael Tomaski steamed up this week. With the New Republic's newsletters, you will always be in the know. Sign up today at tnr.com slash newsletters. That's tnr.com slash newsletters. Within days of Elon Musk taking control of Twitter, people were speculating about how it all might come crashing down. Even if it didn't break immediately, which did seem a sort of thrilling possibility that first weekend, some sort of a break or ending still seemed inevitable. We're talking now with Max Reed, who wrote a post on his Substack newsletter laying out four possible futures for the social media network. Max, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So in your newsletter about the future of Twitter, you separated Twitter as a business from Twitter as a platform, and you proposed a sort of matrix of possibilities. Twitter, the business survives, but Twitter, the platform doesn't. The business fails, but somehow the platform survives, or they both fail, or they both survive. How do you distinguish those two, the platform and the business, and why is it important to distinguish them in your mind? To me, the difference is sort of important to make because Twitter has never really been a successful business. <laughs> right. It has made profits only ever intermittently. It's sort of legendary for the decade plus of mismanagement that it was under before Elon Musk. And yet, at the same time, it also has been this kind of astonishingly successful cultural space. If you're not on Twitter, you almost certainly have heard of it. It's a platform where elite figures in all these different fields congregate, where they pass ideas around, where you can actually get the attention of some very important and famous people. And so in that sense, there's always been this kind of disjunction between the business and the platform and its existence as this kind of 
news generation machine. And so when we talk about what's going to happen under Musk, it, it seems we're thinking about those two different tracks because Musk coming in and changing the way, say, Twitter verification works obviously makes huge a huge difference in how the culture of the platform arises. But it may or may not be good for the business. That's absolutely one of the funniest things about Twitter. And I saw this line circulating a while ago. You have a space where you have Stephen King writing for you for free, right? Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> like yeah. the most successful living fiction author in the world is like, I will contribute to this for free. And then you get, you get this idea of like, how can you not make that work exactly? But <laughs> we've sort of seen it's, it's harder than it sounds. But so speaking of the failure states, and I think we should walk through what you sort of lined up as the four futures, if you will, of Twitter. So we can talk about the obvious scenarios. One is that both the platform and the business survive into the future. And to me, this is maybe what you might have expected in the spring, that Elon Musk would take over Twitter, that he would tweak it to his whatever weird specifications he has, but he would manage to keep it more or less the same and that it would survive in the way that it has in the past. The other option diametrically opposed to that one is that both the business and the platform fail. That has been sort of the direction that it feels like it's been going the last couple of weeks, where not only is Musk chasing off advertisers, firing something like three quarters of the entire Twitter staff, but also everybody on the platform is talking about how bad it is now, how much they want to leave. So in my head, this is like, you know, six months from now, a year from now, the only thing that's left of Twitter is Elon Musk, David Sachs, his, <laughs> you know, VC mm -hmm. sort of right hand man sitting in a room drinking RC Cola and trying to ban like the very last poster who's, who's imitating, <laughs> you know, Stephen King. And when they finally do that, that's it. That's the end of it. I feel like I've, I've been in that room, not a Twitter, but I feel like I've been in that room before. You can smell it, can't you? <laughs> I can, yeah. <laughs> and so what are the other two? What are the other two scenarios you envision? These both seem a little more interesting, but also a little more likely to me. And one is the idea that it's possible that Musk could turn the business around while also killing the platform as we've known it. You know, there's a, a school of thought that says that the way Twitter is and what makes it such a sort of generative space is also what makes it a difficult place to sell advertisements on, for example, that having this kind of freewheeling, free-for-all featuring meth addicts and superstar quarterbacks and the <laughs> president of the United States all on the same website, all being weirdly horny for some reason, turns it into a space that maybe big brand advertisers would rather stay away from. Mm -hmm. So you could see a scenario where Elon Musk or, you know, maybe somebody who was a little bit less strange managed to sort of straighten the platform out and turn it into something a little more like one of the big successful platforms like a YouTube or a Facebook. So one scenario, that scenario is the business survives, but the platform dies. So what's your last scenario, basically the opposite of that one? To me, the slightly darker inverse of that is a situation where the platform survives, but the business doesn't, where all the people and processes and ideas and memes that have made Twitter such an important platform for the media and entertainment and politics, all that stuff stays on the platform, more or less the same. But Musk just can't make it work. He scares off too many advertisers. He fires too many people. The business goes into bankruptcy, in which case uh, he's going to have to find a willing buyer to take it over or somebody is going to have to buy it. Um, and, you know, for me, it's like, who wants this big broken platform where you have access to a lot of very important people in politics and the media, but you'll never make any money? And my <laughs> guess is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia would really like that. <laughs> Obviously, we're in a too soon to tell holding pattern. <laughs> but where do, you, where do you think we're trending right now? You know, my instinct in situations like this is always to avoid the catastrophism. But pretty much every day, Elon Musk has woken up and done something 
sort of stupider and worse than the day before. I keep waiting for there to be like a turning point, a turnaround point, but he really has lost three quarters or more of the staff of Twitter. And Mm -hmm. there's a kind of truism in Silicon Valley that every big platform is overstaffed and bloated. And that may or may not be true on some kind of abstract level. But when you're talking about a platform that's serving billions of visitors, hundreds of millions of users in the middle of, say, a World Cup, it's actually kind of hard to know which are the people who are actually doing their jobs and who aren't. And who is a guy who maybe isn't really doing anything at all, but he's the only guy who has all the knowledge about how to make sure the site stays running. And a really bad way to find all that out is to just fire everybody and see what breaks and when it breaks, which is kind of what he's been doing. We've already heard stories that essentially, you know, after the mass layoffs, they were almost immediately saying you were accidentally let go and we need you to actually come back and run this critical thing. And I think it's been heavily implied that after the mass layoffs, even when he did his memo about like click yes to continue working for Twitter, you know, (laughs) basically email like the mass email that was like, if you want to if you want to like, you know, work uh, all day and all night and weekends for me, you know, please reply yes. And then I think he was actually his circle was surprised at how few people clicked, like replied yes. <laughs> I mean, when this all happened, um, when Musk came on, there's an appeal to believing that just purely on technical grounds, the whole thing is going to implode. It's kind of, there's like a parallel with the argument that like capitalism can't sustain itself. Like it will just evaporate because of its own internal contradictions. But there is this other track, which is just the kind of slow waning of the culture on the platform. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what you see or foresee there. Yeah, my sense, just based on my own anecdotal experience and people in my communities and friend groups is that... Twitter was losing some of the, I'm not quite sure what what the right phrase is, that Twitter was no longer quite as essential in 2021 or 2022 as it had Mm -hmm. been or as it had felt five or six years earlier. I can speak for myself in particular. There was a time a few years ago when it just sort of became clear that there was diminishing returns to giving so much of your career and your life to a platform that (laughs) just really wasn't compensating you for it and, and that frankly was just making you angry all the time for no reason. And so I think that there has been something of a trend that Twitter has been diminished in some ways. Its importance has been diminished in some ways for people. I think that's probably also true of industries like politics, entertainment, other industries that have similarly kind of strange, difficult, vexed relationships with Twitter. You see more and more people talking about joining group chats, private group chats or Mm -hmm. semi-private group chats on apps like Discord than they do on Twitter. So I think that if anything, Elon Musk is accelerating that process, that it's less like it was a paradise and that everybody started leaving. It seems more to me like there was a lot of people who were having trouble justifying the amount of time they were spending or the amount of mm-hmm. content they were giving to the site. And now that it works worse and it's owned by a guy who sucks, maybe we don't want to spend that much time on here at all. All this being said, the difficulty with quitting Twitter is once you've given so much of yourself or your career or your personal brand, it's very difficult to walk away. So, you know, I do think inertia is very much on Elon Musk's and Twitter's side here. Mm. There isn't really like an alternative where you can immediately port over the, the, the what you've built up over the years. What's well, the lack of an alternative that seems like the almost unique aspect of this situation? Because we've all, we're all around the same age. And I'm sure like, you know, 
I know I went through a MySpace phase in high school and then I was on Facebook and like, I don't use either of those platforms anymore, but there was no moment of quitting. It was just like, you know, the MySpace account withered and died, having been like Mm -hmm. the center of my life for two years or something. (laughs) It wasn't like I decided to leave. It was there was something better. But with Twitter being in this state, there isn't really something that's luring you away from it that kind of makes it seem worth leaving the stuff that you've got over there. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thought exercise, partly because I think it reveals just from a product design point of view, what has made Twitter such a a force, you know, for people who write for a living, say, Mm -hmm. because, you know, you can you can start a Substack as I have, and that can be a way to reach readers and you can, you know, read the newspaper if you want to get news. There's all these (laughs) all these different functions of Twitter that you can disaggregate. You can call your friends if you want to talk to them. You can join a group (laughs) chat if you want to gossip. Mm -hmm. But having a sort of single place where you can do all of these things, maybe not as well as you can do them anywhere else, but you can do them at this semi-centralized location any time of day where you can make yourself so mad at somebody you've never met for no reason, (laughs) two in the morning, two in the afternoon, whenever you want to do that, it's there for you. My God, it's going to be very difficult to replace it. It's funny when I see all the alternatives where people are trying to propose, let's all move to this one, you know, and be it Mastodon, be it post, you sort of notice this thing in all of them that are that are proposed as a Twitter alternative or a Twitter replacement is that they're always trying to cure whatever the people behind it see as their problem with the platform. And quite often the thing about the platform they're trying to cure is actually the sort of secret sauce that made it perpetuate <laughs> itself like this. Yeah. And, and you know, you'll see it in post where in the post terms of service, it's like, we will have a civil discussion and you are not allowed to criticize someone because of their net worth. And even in Mastodon, it's meant to be this <laughs> place where the ill they're curing is the sort of incivility, the lack of reason and intelligent and compassionate discussion on Twitter. And it just makes you think, like, do they actually know why all of us were logging into Twitter for so many years. <laughs> no, like I want to read, you know, a, a guy I've never met tell the anti-tax activist Grover Norquist that he's going to put him in a diaper. <laughs> like that's what I want to see. Yeah. What Twitter had at its core was the same promise that a lot of us still hold on to around the internet which is the sort of democratizing idea of it. Twitter was only maybe ever a limited and shallow democratizing influence on a bunch of, you know, industries and people. But it did the thing that every sort of great social wave of the internet has done, which is it found all these, you know, incredibly intelligent, funny, strange, interesting people all across the country. And it gave them a way to voice those qualities. In practice, it often was really awful and still is (laughs) awful and silly and terrifying. But like that contradiction is important to the being of Twitter. And and as you say, like the sort of mastodon alternative of a thousand petty fiefdoms where you can be scolded from one direction or another or banned (laughs) or thrown off and all of your DMs are going to be read by your feudal mastodon lord. (laughs) seems to me to totally miss the appeal of centralization, the appeal of like, of of just entering the slipstream with a hundred thousand other freaks to... (laughs) To see what there is on the internet today. I can't believe you guys have like cornered me into defending Twitter as like a public square, as like the idea is free for all. Little did you know. I can't believe I'm doing this. Like listening to the words coming out of my mouth. I can't, I'm shocking myself here. It does feel like we've all talked ourselves back into this idealistic 2011, 12 kind of moment. Yeah. All right. I want to, I just wanted to do one more kind of a goofy wrap up question. 
you were speaking about the sort of what kept journalists glued to the platform of Twitter for so long, even if they sort of stopped enjoying it. And you pointed out that at a certain point, if you'd built your reputation on the platform for a while, you're, it became a kind of currency for you, especially if you had developed a following, not just for your own sort of ego gratification, but it was sort of important to your career. And I was wondering, because you spoke about that so eloquently, do you have any personal experience with what that would be like, for example, to have lost your Twitter following, Max? <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> as somebody with a Substack, why would I ever want a Twitter? I don't know who needs Twitter. Who needs something like that? The one thing I will say to any listeners who have, say, 50,000 followers and decide they want to take a break from Twitter for a while, if you delete your account and then you don't reactivate it in 30 days, Twitter just deletes that whole thing. They just nuke it. So you will never, ever get it back. And then let's say you have projects you want to promote or whatever, just randomly, just sort of hypothetically here, like a Substack you're launching. Maybe you start a newsletter or a while later, yeah. You won't be able to reach those 50,000 people. So anyway, if you want more insights like this, subscribe to me, maxreed.substack.com. <laughs> All right, that's maxreed.substack.com. Thank you so much, Max, for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. So we may have tricked Max Reed into offering a sort of eulogy for Twitter. After the break, we'll be back to talk to Ian Bogost about why we should welcome the end of social media. Twitter's troubles, of course, predate Elon Musk buying the platform. Twitter's drawn criticism for years for rampant harassment on the platform. The strange way it seems to escalate differences of opinion into blazing fights. Its amplification of the issues only people on Twitter care about. And its distorting effects on our attention spans. We're joined now by Ian Bogost, a contributing writer at The Atlantic and professor of film and media studies at Washington University in St. Louis. He sees an opportunity in the possible disintegration of social media. He's written that any forum that lets you say anything to anyone else as often as possible was, quote, a terrible idea from the outset. Ian, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You wrote an article for The Atlantic about the end of social media in which you argue that the demise of platforms like Facebook and Twitter is something to be welcomed as much as mourned. And your article tracks this shift in kind of the history of social networking from what you call a social network to social media. What's the difference between the two? Yeah, it's really from social networking software to social media, because we've had social networks forever, as long as we've been social beings, which is as long as we've been humans. Those networks have often been constrained by geography, by community, by family. And then we got connected to one another on the internet in large scale. And as a part of that process, folks started inventing software to facilitate social networking. And we're familiar with, you know, Facebook as maybe the mm -hmm. first uh, global scale example of that. But there were a lot of them before then, a product called Six Degrees in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. And then there was Friendster and MySpace. But the thing that all of them did, especially in the early days, was they allowed ordinary people to deepen and discover connections with people they already kind of knew. And I think when we think about that moment from like 95, 97 to 2009, 2010, it is entirely different than the internet we've been living in since 2010, which is all about broadcasting, about being as, as public as possible with every idea in your head so that you can get attention around it, which is, of course, what the companies that make these services want to. When I was reading your piece, when you make that distinction, I was thinking about how back when you had a MySpace account, you know, you had like a little panel of your curated friends yeah. and you would pin like 
I think it was 12 people who were your top friends. And the whole right. focus of that platform was on who are your friends? Whereas in Twitter, when you think about the equivalent, it's like your pinned tweet. And then that's a completely different idea. It's like, here's the top thing that I said. Yeah. That's the broadcast idea rather than the friends, all the friends are here idea. Instagram is the first service that I think deserves the name social network. But Twitter was one of the first services to do what you're describing, to be a place where you went in order to, to broadcast. YouTube was another, but YouTube felt very different or Flickr or for photos. Those services didn't have this kind of celebrity or professionalized implication around them at the time. And that was one of the things that made Twitter kind of so shockingly intriguing in 2007 or so when it was new that you could see what just anyone in the world who was on the service was saying, which was mostly just kind of nothing, you know? Right. Here's what I ate or here's how I'm feeling. I mean, the fact that it was so focused on broadcasting made it very awkward for a lot of people to adopt. Like I got my account in 2010 and didn't use it at all until 2015. Yeah. Why do you think that shift ultimately caught on? Uh, because we're narcissists. You know, it, it's, <laughs> it's delightful to think that the world cares about what you think about anything whatsoever. And that is just too tempting an invitation to turn down. You can sort of look at Twitter and other of the modern platforms, Reddit especially, as the next evolution from, I don't know, forums and message boards, where it wouldn't have been people you would have known IRL, but it was, and it felt like fulfilling this promise of the internet of bringing global connection between people who the thing they had in common was maybe a shared interest in something, a shared hobby. And it did create this sort of connection between people that that felt like what Facebook, what Mark Zuckerberg has been promising for years, bring the world together, connect the world. But even though these message boards and fora were public in a sense, there wasn't that broadcasting element. Yeah, you're right to point out these other influences that have been around for a long time, even with Twitter or with MySpace, with, you know, like your pinned friends, like we had blogs and you had like your, your blog or all the people you were following and maybe nobody was <laughs> reading it, but you those are the folks you considered to be your your kin, your kindred, and homepages before that had something like this. But I think what's interesting about all those is that we can see the positive and negative valences of those communities from the very get-go. Twitter, for example, these days feels a lot more, maybe the whole internet feels a lot more of the way that Usenet felt to me in the early 90s, just kind of a bunch of jerks screaming at each other. <laughs> and that was always there too. And then, you know, message boards or MMOs, you know, massively multiplayer games, mm -hmm. EverQuest or whatever, where you'd meet people you didn't necessarily know beforehand. Those kind of communities were not IRL communities necessarily, but they were real communities. You were getting together with people to to play the same game or because you you both, you know, worked on cars or did knitting or they were networks of activity whose purpose exceeded the use of the software itself. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that changed. That's an interesting definition of a real network and it makes me wonder how you define whatever Twitter is. <laughs> Twitter is a chat room for the world. <laughs> That's how I would define Twitter. Mm -hmm. And what are the main problems with that? All the bad things come out of the good things. So it's worth kind of acknowledging what the good things are, what draws people to these things. The ability to be constrained in your speech, that is limit, the text, the character limit, the short size of those messages that you can send on Twitter makes it much easier to say something than to write a, a blog post or even like a Facebook post. Mm -hmm. So it reduces all that friction of having a fully formed argument 
which of course like has obvious downsides, right? Because <laughs> you don't want everyone just kind of going, hey, here's the thing I'm thinking right this second, you know, <laughs> and it seems definitive. But then also the, the Twitter was the first place where you got global or at least potentially global reach and spread. And the idea of this feed of constant information where you can see what anyone says and you can speak to potentially anyone who's going to see it. There was even a public feed on Twitter in the early days where like literally everything that got posted uh, was was <laughs> visible. That became so tempting, so powerful that it led eventually to the retweet which which you know that had to be invented and implemented by the software company before that we were like copying and reposting uh, posts. You would copy and then you would type mm-hmm. RT. RT, yeah. Quote, ex- yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And when the retweet button was invented, the instantaneous spread, the, the viral spread of, um, of messages for good and ill, the power of that instant spreadability became clear. And that, that's, of course, something that everybody else has adopted. So that capacity for instant and widespread sharing really was invented at and by Twitter. You have this really interesting idea that you wrote about in The Atlantic that's kind of a, an anthropological point. That humans, you say, just are not used to talking to this many people. It's an experience that only a very few people have had in human history. Like very famous people have had this experience. Right. Many of them don't handle it well. Right. (laughs) As we can tell from (laughs) looking at the biographies of very famous people who struggle with fame. And then suddenly anyone could have that experience, including people who weren't looking for it, you know, like small follower accounts that suddenly get retweeted to millions of views for saying something stupid and are suddenly dealing with the fact everyone knows their name or at least their handle. And like, they know this one fact about this person. Yeah. People resist this idea for a couple of reasons. This idea that there's something unnatural about being able to reach the number of people that we can speak to as quickly as we can. There's a, a concept, it's, it's somewhat controversial, the idea of like Dunbar's number, which is like the number of people with whom you can have deep, close relationships is actually very small, like a handful. Mm-hmm. And then as you kind of work out from it, it becomes harder and harder to maintain the clarity and sort of realness of those connections. And eventually you just sort of dump off into the world of acquaintance or strangerness, you know? Mm-hmm. Like whether you adopt that specific approach to social behavior or not, I think that we have to be able to admit like, like this is historically recent. Like, like mm-hmm. we have just never in human history had the capacity for any individual on the planet with a phone or a computer to reach billions, at least like two, three, four billion people. It's just an utterly novel notion that is maybe 10 years old or so. And it's no surprise that uh, we would have a hard time dealing with it collectively in the same way that like individual celebrities have had a hard time dealing with fame on their own. Do you think that the demise of Twitter, whether it's the company actually imploding or just people using it less because it's less pleasurable and less easy to use, do you think that will alleviate some of these problems? I guess the thought I have about the benefit of one or more of these uh, social services falling or even just falling into disrepair is that it would show us, okay, maybe there is an off-ramp maybe there is an alternative. We're long overdue for some kind of change to show that novelty is still possible. I think it is important to make it clear, as you do, to remind people that like this is neither natural nor inevitable. These platforms, these companies, these forms of communication were built intentionally. And again, when Mark Zuckerberg says like our goal is to connect the entire world, 
that's not a value neutral thing. And it's also like you have to sort of ask why. Right. <laughs> like, why, right. like that is not only is it not a value neutral thing, but like why, why is why is that a positive good? Most people don't really want to be connected to the number of people they're connected to. And you know this instantly when you get connected to even a small fraction of all those people <laughs> and see and feel the consequences of, of, of doing so. It's like, oh, like why? Oh my gosh, like, please like, just leave me mm -hmm. uh, alone. Like anything that involves downscaling is good in my book. And so even if you just couldn't post that much, you know, like I can only post 280 characters on mm -hmm. Twitter, but I can post it that number of characters as many times a day as I want. <laughs> you can have an infinitely long thread. Right. <laughs> and it's impossible in the current business models of these companies to imagine them voluntarily choosing to reduce the amount that I can post because engagement is what their businesses are built on. But if I knew that I can say one thing a day or a week, that would make a difference. But remember there was that site, this.com, I think it was called? Yeah. Oh, and yeah, the whole concept yeah. was that you would post one thing a day and it folded pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly, because it couldn't exist. And I think one reason is that the, the audience is like, oh, well, I, I kind of want, when I log on to Twitter, I expect to see a slew of crap. And then I select the three or four things that I can give some attention to from it. And I'm no, so totally. used to just mm -hmm. going, no, 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 okay, maybe that. Right. The thing about habits is that once we develop them, whether they're positive or negative, it's very hard to give them up because they mm -hmm. are what we do. But there have been lots of moments, even within the social media ecosystem, when those patterns of behavior have changed. Like remember back in the early days of this period, which again, I've sort of identified as starting in 2010, we got all those like social gaming uh, apps. You got like Farmville and oh, like, yeah. you know, people like, people got really pissed off about all the like Farmville spam on their Facebook feeds. <laughs> and, and that created need on Facebook's part to suppress those messages to say like, look, enough of this stuff. And then they say they did the same thing with like hate speech, which they, they kind of didn't because it turned out that like the engagement numbers around awful things that people say were good. Whereas the engagement <laughs> around the face Farmville posts were, were poor. It's almost like the difference between like a well-designed game and, and gambling. Yeah. That's in terms a very, very good comparison. <laughs> you know, in terms, of, in terms of how you engage with it, because gambling is addictive um, and operates in many of the same pleasure centers of the brain. But, and kind know, of contentless, right? It like is. It doesn't matter what you're betting on. You don't play cards because like you love the specific game. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's dead on. Some of the very first worries about computer games back in the 70s and 80s were that they were a little bit too much like slot machines uh, yeah. with this sort of partial reinforcement. And then you were literally dropping coins into them at the time, which also helped with the comparison. But that danger of the partial reinforcement return and, you know, just refreshing the feed because something will be new and then you'll get a little hit of dopamine as you discover the novelty. That structure has been completely ingrained and it will be really hard to give up for that reason if we can even decide that we want to give it up collectively. So I don't take you to be saying in any of this that social networking or social media is inherently bad. I think that you think there is a kind of, there could be a good version of it. And you mentioned downscaling as a feature that would in some of these networks, what would a more stripped down, functional, less toxic social world look like? Anything that reduces the number of people, the frequency, the spreadability, anything with breaks or with friction mm -hmm. is good. The problem is those kinds of, of services, they look like art objects or like curiosities so long as we have all the rest of them. 
it's almost like if social media is the cigarette, then these alternatives are like they're like candy cigs or like you know <laughs> they're like nicotine gum or something. They, they're they're just bad alternatives to the delivery mechanism that we've become acclimated to. So even as I think we need to give ourselves uh, familiarity with a reduced audience and a reduced volume of social messages, I also think that it will be almost impossible for them to succeed so long as the upscaled versions persist. And the tech companies that run these are so wealthy and powerful, even after losing like giant portions of their market value this year in stock collapses, they still have so much cash and so much value that they're not just going to lay down and let it happen. So I'm not really answering your question because mm -hmm. I don't think there is a good, simple answer. And I don't want your listeners to hear someone come on here and say, oh, we just need AppWizu mm -hmm. to replace you know, the, the last one. <laughs> or we need individuals to be more virtuous themselves. Right, right? that's oh, not going to work either. And we need to give up on that idea forever, yeah. So anyway, there's no hope. Thank you, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. Read Ian Bogost's article, The Age of Social Media is Ending, on theatlantic.com. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Myron Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoy the politics of everything and you want to support us, one thing you can do is share your favorite episode with a friend. Thanks for listening. 